Hey, well, thank you, Kevin and worship team. Uh, again, Tim Rogers, lead pastor here, and you found us in uh, part six of six of a series called Trust Me. And I want to begin this morning with um, just identifying something in the room that we don't always talk about, and that is that life is governed by some principles that are unmovable. There are some axioms or um, you know, ideas in life that actually, regardless of whether we like them, embrace them, or agree with them, they are true and will always be true. For example, imagine if you could, there's a man driving his car down the road, heading somewhere he's not too uh, familiar with, and he doesn't have Google Maps or Apple Maps and doesn't have a GPS system available, and he doesn't really get lost, his men don't get lost, but he's maybe not quite on point with where he's going and might feel this growing sense of, I don't know, confusion, which is a little weird. Let me ask you, would he stop and ask for directions? Of course not. A principle, an axiom for life that is true. Whether you like it or not, it just is true. Now let me ask you this, if he's with, if this man happens to be married and his wife is in the passenger seat and they're still on this journey and they come to an intersection, a T-junction, and she is sure that you go left and he is sure that I've been there before and you go right, which direction is the right way to go? left. That's exactly right. Another principle, axiom of life that is true. That's right. So there's some things that, that are just true about life, including, and I've learned this because I'm a junior high basketball coach at Peckley Valley as well, that there is a certain stench to the locker room of a junior high boys locker room that whether I like it or not is going to be there and is immovable and kills several objects along the way. There are just some things about life that are true no matter what, whether we like it or not, embrace them or not, agree with them or not, there are some things that drive life. And one of those principles, beyond stench and directions for men, one of those principles, believe it or not, was outlined hundreds of years ago by a Christian philosopher um, named Augustine. He, he put it this way. He said, we are, hold on, here we go, we are what we love. We are what we love. And whether you like it or not, or agree with it or not, it, it almost doesn't matter. Like the tide, the current tide will come in and go out whether we embrace it or not. I would argue that this is a principle of life that is true for you, whether you like it or not, true for everybody. That we are a compilation of that which we love, and we cannot help but be that. That the things that we love, we end up doing. The things that we love, we end up worrying about. The things that we love, we end up planning for and saving for and, and hoping don't get taken from us. That we become a compilation of the things that we love. And that which we love, we do. Just the way that it works. And in this series that I'm in called Trust Me, you might be wondering, why am I starting by talking about love when it's supposed to be about trust? And let me put the two together pretty quickly for you this way and say this, that we trust the most what we love the most. This is why they're related. That we trust the most what we love the most. The thing that you love the most, you're going to trust the most. You're going to give the most energy and attention to. That's just the way that it's going to be. There is a relationship, a strong relationship between what we love the most and what we trust the most just the way it works. Now, to add to this a little bit, as life goes on and you go from being small and, you know, in diapers and, you know, on up, life becomes a little more complicated as we move on and the amount of things that we can love increases as we grow older. You know, when you're younger, you can really only love food and getting your diaper changed, by and large, and sleep. I mean, that's about, that's about it. If a baby is crying, generally it's in that range of those three things that are happening. But as you get older, and I, I kind of brought some things here to help visualize this this morning, um, there are certain things that add to your life in a good way that are fun, 
like this is, if I don't break it, here we go. Some of you may not be able to see this, but this is a picture of me with my now wife on our wedding day, okay? And as my life, as I got older, I began to love this woman more than before I even knew her for sure, but more and more to the point where we actually got married. And so all of a sudden now in 1998, I have this love in my life that I didn't have in 1988, right? The, the amount of love that I have increases. So I'm just going to kind of put her here for a minute. Nothing personal, Jen. Now, as things would go, of course, when that happens, sometimes these things happen. And these are three little kids. This is from many years ago. Um, yeah, isn't that cute? I didn't even ask him if I could do this this morning. So, yeah, there we go. But so we have three kids, and, and now I love these kids for sure. But that was something I didn't have, you know, 20 years ago. I just didn't. I didn't have kids 20 years ago. Now I do, and I and I love them. And so there's another thing to kind of add to my love pile of things that I love. And many of you know I like to exercise, and so here's you, there's no way you can see this, but here's a picture and it'll represent what I like to do for exercise, okay? So I like to exercise. It gives me a sense of relief and mental stress and uh, so, many, so many good things coming out of that. But, but I didn't honestly like this, and this is a picture of me at the top of Pike's Peak, by the way, having ridden my bike up there a couple years ago. And I, I didn't have this love even 10 years ago. This is something I picked up in the last decade. But now, all of a sudden, I'm going to add this love to my list of things that I have to love. And I'm also going to add this. I didn't have a picture of the church. I could have taken a selfie of you all, but I'm going to use the Bible to represent what I do in my work, okay? And I wasn't doing this, again, wasn't doing this 20 years ago. I was 16 years ago, but I wasn't 20 years ago. And so as I get older, the amount of things that I have to love and give my time to and engage in change. And I'm going to add this. I don't have a smaller picture. So we all have other hobbies as well. And for mine, you know, I enjoyed photography and traveling as a family. So this is us when we went out. Not us. I mean, we're not there. But uh, Estes Park, Colorado, we had a couple years ago, went out there. And so I you know, enjoyed taking pictures and traveling with the family. So it's another thing that I get to do and, and kind of get to love. And so as life builds, there's more and more things that come to me and come to you that that kind of add to the pile of things that, that say, please love me and please give attention to me and make sure that you give enough to me. And, and over time, if this is true, that we trust the most what we love the most, there are times when what we love the most can be confusing. Like, I don't know what I love the most. Like, I think I know the right answer, but it can get hard. And you can realize that if I give too much time to, to work, then the other things on my pile get shortchanged. And then all of a sudden, my family isn't taken care of. If I give too much time to uh, exercise, then all of a sudden, then work gets taken from, or hobbies or travel with the family. Like It can get confusing. And this morning, in the passage of Scripture we're going to be in, what I see happening is this, that God cares so much about the order of our loves that he is willing to do something so hard that to me it, it, it is almost unconscionable to ask what God asks of Abraham. But he does it, I believe, to help Abraham and to help Sarah figure out the order of all of the loves of their life. So I want to take you to Genesis 22 this morning and show you a story that if you've been around church at all, you probably have heard the story. Even if you haven't been around church, you may still have heard the story. And maybe you haven't heard it in this way, maybe you have, but I hope that you can see it with fresh eyes because I think the story 
is incredibly powerful. So if there's a book in your Bible called Genesis. It's the very first book of your Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, there's one in the pew near you. We'd love to give that to you if you don't own one. But I want to invite you to turn to Genesis 22. Uh, and we're going to look at the majority uh, of that chapter. Okay, Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham... Here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Let's pause it there for a minute. As if Abraham needed reminded, God reminded him there at verse 2, that this son, your only son, whom you love, that's how I'm going to describe him, remember? He, because the truth is, Isaac isn't actually Abraham's only son. If you've been with us, you know that you know, last week we talked about Ishmael, that Ishmael is in that category. Ishmael is a real human being, he's a son, and Abraham has him. But he's like, no, Abraham, just to be clear, I want you to take the one you love, the, the only one, the one that you would say, of all the things that I love in this world, Isaac is the one. Like, he's the one that I love. And God says, I want you to take him. And then I want, you to, I want you to kill him for me. Now, if you've been in church, you've heard this story before, so get out of church for a minute in your mind and run this headline through your mind if you were reading the news or checking your Twitter feed or seeing your social media updates or whatever it is, however you engage the news. Imagine you read about someone who is a religious leader or a world leader who requires his followers to sacrifice their firstborn children to prove their loyalty to him. How would you feel? Wow, what a godly thing to do. I can't wait to get in their camp. I mean, you would think lunatic. You would think cultish. You would think this has to be stopped. <laughs> who in the world, who in the world is so crazy that they were to require the sacrifice of their firstborn son in order to prove loyalty. That is cruel. And I don't want to run by that. I had a friend who was in high school at the same time I was in high school, 67 years ago. And this, this moment here of seeing, trying to understand God as a father, she said, how in the world do you understand God as a loving heavenly father? Out of Genesis 22 that God would ask Abraham, hey, kill your son for me if you don't mind. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is cruel, in my opinion. Here's what Abraham does. Verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey, and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance, and he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. <laughs> so much happening right here. The immediate response of Abraham, look at it in verse 3, he's like, early the next morning he got up. Like, as soon as this word comes, go sacrifice your son. Abraham's like, sure, I'll do it in the morning. I'll get up early in the morning so we can make sure that we get going on the journey. I have to be careful as I read into the text, I read God as cruel. Abraham doesn't respond that way. I don't see it in Abraham. I read it as cruel. This is like second-hand uh, uh, judgment. You ever run into someone who um, claims someone else's suffering as the reason why they've walked away from faith? 
I had a friend who's walked away from faith, and the reason is because his friend, because of suffering in his family, okay, because of suffering in his family, but imagine it this way, if someone you knew was involved in a significant car accident, and you looked at that and you thought, how could God allow that person, who's such a good person, to go through such an ordeal? Like, God must be absent, God must be unaware, he must be silent, but what if that person's reaction is, what a grace this was for me that God would slow me down enough to help me remember what is most important. See, I can't project onto someone else's life that which I want to. So when Abraham doesn't respond this way, when Abraham doesn't see it as cruel, I need to be careful, first of all, to filter my experience through what Abraham is experiencing. So early in the morning, Abraham gets up and loads his donkey. I don't see him talk with anyone. I don't see him objecting about anything. What he did is he took two of his servants and Isaac. They go to prepare and move on. And so he saw the place in the distance. They get there, and if you can imagine the journey, three days journey, what would be on Abraham's mind, the heaviness and the weight of it all. And they get there, and look at verse 5 again. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. I don't know what this means. I don't know what's going on with Abraham. I don't know if he's delusional. I don't know if he is lying to himself or the servants, if he's saying this to the servants so that they don't come with him and try to stop him. Because I don't think it would go well to say, you stay here while I go kill my son and I'll be back. Like, I don't know what the servants would do in that situation. So I don't know what's going on, but in the New Testament, the author to the Hebrews writes it this way. The Hebrews looks back into this very moment, and they kind of narrate it. They're kind of doing an analysis, a commentary on the game, if you will. And here's what they say in verse 19 of Hebrews 11, that Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So their interpretation would be, well, in that moment, Abraham was thinking, resurrection is possible. All things are possible with God. So let's go. Now, that may be, but I will also say, I don't know of any precedent for resurrection to this point. So if Abraham is thinking resurrection, I don't know where he's getting it from because I don't see it in Genesis to this point. So this is a crazy kind of faith. All that Abraham knows right now is two things are true. One is this, that God has promised to build the future around Isaac. That he said, Isaac is going to be the one who I'm going to build the future through. And then secondarily, he just made this thing. God just asked Isaac to sacrifice, or him to sacrifice Isaac. That these two things are true. That God said, through Isaac, the future will be. My covenant blessings will be through Isaac. But by the way, I want you to kill him now. And he's standing in between these two... Poles that are just not reconcilable. I mean, I can't, I can't have both. Just, I can't figure out how to cut the middle here. It just isn't going to work. And what's he going to do? And Abraham, if you know the story, he does what God asked him to do. Verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife, and as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, uh, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Again, I don't know what Abraham is thinking. I don't know if he's lying to his son or if he's just speaking in faith that this will be. Verse 9, when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar. Imagine if you're Isaac, how you're feeling at this point. You're bound to the altar. 
Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said, and don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. So Abraham looked up and he saw in the thicket a ram caught by its horns, and he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Which, by the way, is where we get the name of God, Jehovah Jireh. And if you are a child of the 80s, you know that there's a worship song that goes, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, and it's an amazing song. And many of you wish you would have been born and grown up in the 80s just because of that reason. But this is where that comes from, that God will provide in that space. Okay, now, how do we... How do we resolve the tension of the story? Is God a cruel God who just wants, you know, who would, who would put um, so much weight and an impossible ask upon a father to kill his only son? What, what in the world is happening here? As I see this, and this is why I began with my uh, pictures over here and the things that I love, things that I enjoy doing, when God says, when Jesus says in the New Testament, he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. That to me, what I see in the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22 is that God actually cares a whole lot more about what we love and what we love the most than I think maybe, than I think maybe he even should. <laughs> and I think what I get instructed on, I get taught on is that what God is saying in here is that I'm willing to go to extreme lengths to make sure that your heart is in the right place and that you don't overlay on your heart loves that shouldn't be there. Because, as our friend Augustine said before, that we are what we love. We just are what we love. And one of the things Augustine pointed out to us is it's not just what we love, but it's also the order of our loves that are important and so as I mentioned earlier, of the things that I love, if I, if I love my work too much, I end up not giving time and energy to my, my family. If I love money more than I love justice and business, for example, then I'm going to end up exploiting my customers and employees and taking the most for myself because I haven't ordered my loves in the right way. Now, here's what can happen sometimes uh, for, for all of us. If you're human, I think this can happen. I'm going to move work. I'm going to move exercise. I'm going to move my kids. I'm going to move Colorado over here. Right? And I'm just going to go back for a minute to when Jen and I got married in 1998, which was a fun day, May 30th. Um, Sometimes what we'll do without realizing it is we need, to, we need to lean into things in life. We need to put the weight of our life somewhere. And we'll kind of take, for many people, not everybody for sure, right? But we, we can take some things that are super important to us, including a, a marriage. We can kind of set it here, and, with, and this is going to seem weird right now, especially. I'm not trying to sit on you, Jen. But we can take the weight of our life and put it on here I'm not actually sitting at him. I'm going to break the frame, and that won't go well in my real life at home. So, okay. But we can take the weight of our life and put it on here. Like I'm going to lean into. I'm going to put with all my life the my weight the things that are most important to me. 
And what happens when I do that, when I put this on the, the seat of the, the heart where my life really should be, what I end up doing is I put this weight on my spouse that she isn't meant to bear. Like she can't handle the weight of all my expectations. She can't handle that. When she becomes the primary love, the primary love of my life, she can't handle all of what that means. She can't handle all that. It's impossible. I end up hurting her. In fact, as my life continues to expand and I get kids and I put the kids on there, all of a sudden, and some of us have been wrapped up in the problem of loving our kids too much, if you will, and they become the center of our world. They are it. Like they're what we hope for and dream for. And when we kind of put the weight of life on that, on family and kids, I'm telling you, our kids cannot handle the weight of expectation and pressure that is put on them if the weight of our lives is up on them all of the time. And whether it's exercise or work as well, I mean, just add it to the pile. We end up putting so many things and then put the weight of our life on that, saying these things that we love, we're just not meant or built to be able to, to do this. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. This is so important to me, and I love the way that he phrases it up. He says this way, If you love anything more than God, you harm the object of your love. You harm yourself, you harm the world around you, and you end up deeply dissatisfied and discontent. This is exactly what he's saying, that if you love anything, and if I love anything more than God, I actually harm the object of my love. If I were to love my spouse more than I love God, then I'm going to need her. I'm going to need her to do what God is supposed to do for me. I'm going to need her to bring fulfillment to me completely. I'm going to need her to deliver peace in the middle of turmoil. I'm going to need her to provide meaning and satisfaction in my life. And that is too much for another fallen human being to provide. If I love my kids more than God, <laughs> I need them to make me proud. I need, I need them to be the ones who I look at in the future, like I'm so proud of my kids, they did something. I mean, my life was meaningless, but they have done incredible things. I'm so excited about what they have done. And there's this weight and pressure on the kids that was never meant to be there because they can't handle the weight of expectation. They can't do what God is meant to do. Just impossible. And this is why I think in, in Genesis that God looks at Abraham's life and he says, Abraham, you've got this incredible love of Isaac. And I see it and that's incredible. I want you to take it off of this thing. I want you to, to pull it off. In fact, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm risking cruelty. I'm risking looking cruel just to make sure that you understand. I want you to lean on me. I want you to set the weight on me fully. And then what I want you to do, Abraham, is I want you to take back in your hands the things that you love. I want you to put them on your lap. I want you to put them in your hands. I don't want to take them away. I'm not interested in taking away your family, your kids. I'm not interested in taking away your, your exercise, the things you do for fun. I'm not interested in taking away your work. And if I had one more hand, I'd pick Colorado up. I'm not interested in taking away all these things from you. But come on, don't put the weight on the things that were not meant to carry that weight. Set the weight on God first. And then take all of these other things that you have and hold them loosely in your hand without putting the weight of pressure and expectation and hope to have them fulfill things that they can never and were never meant to fulfill in the first place. The ordering of our loves is what God gets after with Abraham so cleanly and acutely. It's so profound to me. Now, I have to ask this question, if this is true, that we are to kind of clear the seat and settle in and love God first. 
and kind of hold the rest of this stuff in our lap? Let me ask this question. How do you love God? Is it just, hey, man, figure it out. I mean, muster up the will to love this abstract being, invisible God, more than you do right now. I mean, just love away. Listen to music louder, you know, I mean, maybe that'll do it. Go for a walk early in the morning, maybe that'll do it. You know, how, how, do, you, how do you love God? Let me just give you two practical suggestions. Then I want to finish with one more, um, looking at one more section of a letter that, that Paul wrote. First thing I want to recommend to you, if you want to kind of get this right, if you want to kind of be able to kind of sit and lean the weight of your life in the right spot, I encourage you, first of all, first, we must see our condition clearly. Okay? We must see our condition clearly. In other words, you and I, with some kind of regularity, have to have got to have the edges of our lives softened down, the edges of our hearts kind of warmed with this reminder that, what, what we're taught in the New Testament is that each one of us are sinners. That on our own, we deserve to die. Like on my own, I don't deserve God's merit. I, I, God doesn't look down and be like, you are such a righteous man, Tim. This is why I came to earth so that I could save you because you're so impressive. This isn't the way it is. In fact, it's the complete opposite. It's like despite you, Tim, I've, I've offered you know, my son for you that, that being aware of my condition immediately humbles and softens. I don't know when the last time is for you. You've, you've even been brought to tears by the frustration of your own ongoing failures and struggles and your own even shame and guilt in the past. Where do you go to get rid of that? How in the world do you handle that stuff that you wish no one would ever know about who you are and how you think and what you do and how you functioned? The anger sometimes that we hold, the lack of forgiveness that we have, the struggles with pride and greed and arrogance, all of that is part of who we are. I'm like, what do we do with that? And some of us just sit on our families to resolve that. I mean, some of us sit on work to make us feel more powerful. Some of us sit on things that we're not supposed to sit on. Like, it's just not meant to hold that. It can't do that. So the first thing for me is come back to, we've got to see ourselves clearly again. This is who I am, and, I, and I'm lost. I'm lost without help. And none of these things, none of these things will ever take the weight that I need to put on them. Secondarily, I must see God's grace clearly. I must see God's grace clearly. With all the weight and pressure and loss of who in the world I am, it's an incredible gift to see what God has done for us through Christ. That God would take his son, and unlike Abraham's story, God's story with his son ends differently. And he actually does sacrifice him for you and for me. So that the weight of what I need to sit on is the gift of God through Jesus Christ. What Paul wrote about this in the book of Romans, I'm going to read it to you this morning. If you have time to flip there quick, you can. If not, you can listen to me. Romans chapter 8. Verses 32 on, I'm going to read quick. Romans 8.32, Paul wrote this. Paul was a follower of Jesus who originally was not a follower at all and had an incredible moment of conversion and then came to follow Jesus. Romans 8.32, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The Abraham story finishes and concludes and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. It finds its fulfillment there, that that Christ was put on that altar, so to speak. He was put on that cross, and if you will, the knife wasn't held back from him, but was delivered to him, and he died. And he died for you, and he died for me. And Paul writes about that. He says, verse 33, Who will bring any charge then against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And then he asks this question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sort, as it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And he concludes with this incredible finish in verses 37 to 39. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So when you lean into love, when you lean in and when you put your weight down, that is the love that you are leaning on. You are leaning on the love of God who would take his only son and sacrifice him for your benefit and for mine. So that we can be justified. So that we can be found righteous. So that at the end of the day, for you and for me, that we can have a place to put the weight of our lives. And so let me ask you again. When is the last time that you have felt moved and grieved over the condition of your own sin and what it has done for you. The place where you feel like, man, without God, where in the world would I be? That you can both remember who in the world you are, but secondarily, remember the incredible grace that God has shown us through Jesus. You want to know how to love God, how to lean into that so that everything else that you hold in your hands will be held rightly? Remember who you are, remember who Jesus is. Remember who you are, remember who Jesus is. Remember who you are, and remember what Jesus has done for you. And out of an incredible strength of humble courage, lead your family, lead at work, lead with your hobbies, lead with your life. But put your weight on God alone, because nothing else can handle that. And what you trust the most is going to be what you love the most. And God is worthy of all the trust that you can give him. I hope you've enjoyed this series on Trust Me. I hope you've enjoyed looking at Abraham and what he has done for us. Will you pray together with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be together in this series and in this story of Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and the ups and downs of real life and struggles and tensions and difficulties. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for us, not withholding your only son, not saving him at the last moment like you did Isaac, but actually following through and sacrificing your son for us so we can have a new relationship with you as our heavenly father through what Jesus has done on the cross. 
For those here this morning who may not have that relationship or may have just maybe trying to figure out what that looks like or may have been kind of in and is not kind of out or just wrestling with all of these, uh, you know, these issues around faith and Christian faith in particular, I pray that you'd help them to have the next, take the next step, have the next conversation, move forward in considering again the weight of where we put our love, where we put our energy, and whether or not your son Jesus Christ is worth leaning into and loving in this way. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus and what he has done for each and every one of us. We love you and we thank you for the time we can share together. In Jesus' name.